This is Salt and Spine. I think some people view savory as this more narrow category of baking, but actually it's a really, really full subject area. You know, there's really a lot going on in many cultures around the world. There are more savory baked goods than there are sweet baked goods. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You're tuning in for a special episode. It's the 2022 Baking Month. All of December, we're celebrating some of the year's best baking books with a handful of author interviews, dozens of featured recipes, excerpts, and more. Make sure you're subscribed to our Substack to get it all. Today's Baking Month guest is Erin Jean McDowell. A Midwest native, Erin learned to bake like so many of us alongside her grandmothers. While studying baking and pastry arts at the Culinary Institute of America, Erin realized a career in food media was the path for her, and she's been carving her way through since. After years of working alongside other cookbook authors and for media outlets on recipe development, testing, and styling, Erin published her first solo cookbook, The Fearless Baker, in 2017 to high praise. Her pie book, called aptly The Book on Pie, soon followed, and now we're treated to her latest cookbook, one she tells us she's been mulling on for years, Savory Baking, Recipes for breakfast, dinner, and everything in between. From breads to hearty tarts and other savory bakes, yes, that includes pizza too, savory baking brings the joy of baking to those of us with more of a salt tooth than a sweet tooth. But don't worry, there are some sweet spins too. So let's head now to our virtual studio where Erin Jean McDowell joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, we are thrilled to have you and to talk with you today about your latest cookbook, Savory Baking, and the rest of your work and and all the things. Um, but congratulations. It's beautiful. I'm so excited um, about this book. Thank you so much. I it's It's been fun seeing it finally out in the world. I'm sure. Yes, it's always a, a process. We always like to start by talking just a little bit more about you and your career and your life to understand how you got to where you are today before we dive into the book a little bit more. So I know you grew up in Kansas, um, around yes. Lawrence, Kansas, right? Yes. You call it a food obsessed family, right? Talk about <laughs> like the role food and baking and all of that played in, in your childhood. Sure. Yeah. Um, my my family, uh, I always say food obsessed because it just sort of touched a lot of areas of our life. Like when we would throw a party, it was more about the food that we were making for the party. And the theme of the party usually had something to do with the food that we were making. And, um, you okay. know, at various stages in my life, one of my brothers brewed beer. One of my aunts was always there with like a new restaurant recommendation. It just kind of felt like everybody um, had it as a common interest at whatever level that was, whether it was just wanting to dive into a good dessert at the end of the day, or whether it was, you know, more involved. And um, I realized that after kind of wanting to be an artist for most of my life, but not sure what my art form was, you know, when I tried to paint, it didn't necessarily translate. When I tried to draw, it didn't necessarily translate. But when I realized that food was an art form, that was when I realized I, I think I found my thing and, and the pieces sort of of the puzzle fell together for me. And that happened like mid sort of mid high school, right? Like as a teenager, you kind of had that realization that maybe food, baking, cooking could be a pursuit for you. Yes, I sort of 
started baking with more frequency when I was around 14 years old. And then I got my first job in a bakery when I was 16. And you, I, I read too that you started baking pies in particular with your grandmother, who yes. you're also named after, right? Or your middle name is her is her first name, yes, Jean? Yes, correct. So I started baking pies with her when I was around 14 years old. It was truly just an experiment, just something we were doing for fun. But we really enjoyed doing it. We would also sometimes bake bread together. And um, it mm-hmm. just sort of became a, a thing that we would do. And it was actually our tradition, you know, every year for Thanksgiving, my grandma and I would make the pies together for Thanksgiving a- after that point. And, you know, she passed away, unfortunately, before I was ever published as an author of, of a book. So um, okay. I made the decision kind of early on that I wanted to use my full name, which my middle name is Jean, which that was her first name. And so I like to use my full name kind of as homage to her of all that, you know, she taught me and left with me. And my grandma was a great baker, but, you know, very practical. I wouldn't say that she was, you know, the most skilled. Certainly by the time I was going to pastry school, I was coming home and teaching her a thing or two. But um, several members of my family, my grandma and my mom, you know, really inspired my love of food and baking in particular. Yeah, that's that's so sweet. So you you start baking more seriously, you know, as a teen, 16, you start working at this bakery as a, a part-time job. And then it seems like it, it just kind of clicked for you, right? Because then you, right after college, or right, sorry, right after high school, go to the CIA um, for their baking program. And so you kind of knew at that point that this was a, a career path for you. Yeah, I... I- really fell in love with it. And I, like I said, I had been thinking, what, where am I going to go to college? I'm going to go to art school. And once I had that in my head, I just thought I'm going to go to pastry school. I'm going to go to pastry school and then I'll never be a starving artist because I will always (laughs) make baked goods. And, um, I really, I really loved it. I had my first job. Um, like I mentioned, I would go after high school, to uh, do some basic prep work at a bakery. And then as soon as I graduated high school, they sort of pawned off the the shift that no one wanted on me, which was the early morning baking spot. Sure. So I, uh, you know, the summer after my senior year of high school, when many other kids are up to various other activities, I was going to bed at 7 p.m. and waking up in the middle of the night to uh, go pull that shift at the bakery. And honestly loving every minute of it. And then I went off to pastry school as soon as I, uh, you know, was done with that summer. And, um, and the rest is sort of history, been working in food ever since. And you, I think I read too, that you realized it while you were in pastry school, that food media in particular was appealing to you, right? Um, and after graduating pastry school, I think your first job for a while was working at the school at the Culinary Institute of America with like their publishing arm. Yes, I, I have had some experience working in actual bakeries and restaurants at various points in my career. But I'd always had a love and a passion for writing. And so it was sort of always in my sights. Even before I went to school, I just think before I went to school, I didn't know that that was really a thing, a job that people did. So once I was in school, and I kind of saw some of the possibilities that were available in the food space, that was when I um, decided to kind of bring the two things I really love together, food and writing and kind of find a way in media. My first job, I was doing, you know, all sorts of things. I was helping to edit recipes. I was working with the test kitchen. I was doing all kinds of things. But part of my job was to organize the photo shoots for the different books 
that we were working on. And at the beginning, I really hated that. It was my least favorite part of my job. But as time went on, I realized that really the only reason I hated it is because I didn't understand it. And the more understanding I got, the better prepared I could be for the shoots. Then suddenly it became this incredible, creative, um, you know, thing that I could do. And I really, really loved that too. So that was when I sort of struck off on my own as a freelancer to just kind of work generally in the media space. And in in that time, I've worn many, many hats. Yeah. And you start um, working with and contributing to different outlets. You're um, working with Pure Wow for a while. Of course, you've had a long relationship. Um, many folks know you from Food 52, where you, I think if I'm right, started as one of their you know prolific community members um, yes. and then sort of got more and more into the fold and now host a show with them and um, have been very involved. But when did you think that like a cookbook was an um, accomplishment that you had in, in mind? Was that pretty early on in the process? Or how did you sort of come to publishing your first book, which was in 2017, I think? Yes, I, I definitely wanted to write a book. I, I dreamed that I would do it, but it wasn't even really in my sights uh, at the time that the opportunity was first presented to me. I still thought it was a few years down the road, maybe. I was working as a food stylist for um, some other people's books, and I was actually in Savannah, Georgia. Um, I was shooting a book for a lovely author, Dora Charles. Uh, that book is called A Real Southern Cook in Her Savannah Kitchen. It's a great book. I learned a lot while cooking from that book. I learned a lot from Dora. Okay. Um, and I was down there shooting that book. And Dora's literary agent, um, within, I would say, about 30 minutes of meeting me, said, you know, you should write a book. And I thought, okay, well, uh -huh. let's get through this one first, and then let's talk about that. And um, then the editor of that book showed up and she said the same thing within, you know, a couple hours of meeting me. She was like, you know, you should write a book. So um, that literary agent, Doe Coover, became my literary agent. And that editor, Rux okay. Martin, became the editor of my first book, which was called The Fearless Baker. Um, I pitched a few different ideas for that first book, but they really liked the idea of it being something kind of general and all-encompassing in baking. And that's actually can be kind of difficult to stand out, especially as a new author um, trying to, you know, kind of have more of a compendium rather than something a little bit more specific. Um, so I sure. remember that was a really exciting opportunity for me. And and um, yeah, I love my my first book, Baby. It's very special. <laughs> Yeah, the first one's always very special. Um, and, and now this is your third solo book. Um, you also wrote the book on pie, and now we have savory baking. And I understand you've had the, the savory idea has been percolating for a while, right? Like you've wanted to approach this this broad topic of savory baking for some time. Yes, I, I couldn't shake it. In fact, that there's a reason there's a savory chapter in the book on pie also. And part of the reason for that is because I've been obsessed with this idea for some time. I actually started pitching it as a book five years ago, but it wasn't kind of the right fit at that time. And um, okay. it was really exciting for me when I kind of got a, a new opportunity and I got to bring that idea back to the surface, which was what I'd been hoping for all along. You know, even when I kind of heard some people pass on it years ago, I was like, it's just a matter of time. This book is going to come because I think some people view savory as this more narrow category of baking, but actually mm -hmm. it's a really, really full 
subject area. You know, there's really a lot going on in many cultures around the world. There are more savory baked goods than there are sweet baked goods in those kind of cultures and communities. And so I really feel like um, it was only a matter of time until I could get somebody to see why I thought this was a really exciting subject to pursue. Yeah, it's it's a great point that it's a very wide genre, savory baking. Um, And this is savory baking. Your book is quite, um, I hate the term, encyclopedic. It's quite comprehensive um, and includes a lot. But of of course, there's even more that that is out there that isn't in this book. I love that you use this term salt tooth, um, (laughs) that you found yourself turning to your salt tooth more than your sweet tooth. I've never heard anybody use the term salt tooth. And I think that's another thing that sometimes it's maybe a misconception about savory baking is that we often crave savory bakes, but we don't talk about, at least in my experience, those cravings in the same way that we talk about sweet tooth cravings, which really have this thing, this sort of aura built up about them, right? Like you have a craving for a a sweet pie. Um, But I often too find myself turning to my sweet, to my salt tooth uh, more than my sweet tooth. Is that something, is that how you've always sort of been? You've had more of a salty disposition. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You know, it's funny also, too, that you said that you like the term, because at one point, I even was kind of pitching that the book be called Salt Tooth. And then we decided that that. we decided that it might have been too confusing without, you know, more context of what it is. But that's why it does play sort of a prominent role in a lot of the descriptions and in the early pages of the book, because it still is an important, um, you know, kind of notion for me. Um, And I always like the idea of a cookbook with a title where you're like, what does that mean? You know, I don't necessarily need it spelled out for me. But that said, um, uh, yeah, I kind of noticed this as a trend in my baking style. Gosh, like um, probably eight or nine years ago, um, whenever I was in a position where I needed to impress, you know, maybe I was making things for colleagues or maybe I got an opportunity to go to, you know, a big festival where there were going to be a lot of people there. Maybe my family was coming to visit and I wanted to impress them, whatever it was. I found that I was typically making savory baked goods and I, I realized it was just because that was where I really liked to creatively flex a little bit too. Um, Yes, it was something I was craving. Yes, I have more of a a savory side to me. Um, In fact, I kind of got pulled down in an article I wrote years ago um, on Food 52, where I said, you know, I, I'm actually the person when everyone else orders dessert, sometimes I order a cheese plate. But it's not for the reason mm-hmm. that people think. It's not that I don't love sweets. I dearly, dearly do. It's just this strange thing where it actually does become kind of like work to me. Um, eating a dessert mm. sometimes after eating sweets all day long, you know, it, it isn't what I am craving. Um, sure. And certainly with my um, my husband, we both find ourselves really craving these savory baked goods a lot. And I also, when I would pitch this idea or when I would talk about it, people would say, like, what? And I would say, well, like pizza, you know, and that is yeah. a savory baked good, but we don't always think of it as baking or in that same category as baking, um, you know, the way we think of baking a cake or something like that. So that was one of the uh, reasons that I really wanted to dive into this. And it was really fun for me because I had so many more ideas than even what was ended up printing in this book. I We had to delete a lot because I had too many recipes. I had too many ideas. And I, I just, this area, I it's sort of, I feel that way with pie too. I really never 
have a hard time coming up with new ideas and directions of where to take these recipes. And I just feel like there's so many possibilities. Yeah, I'm sure you had to call a lot. Well, it's it's good fodder for volume two, subtitle <laughs> sweet tooth, perhaps. Or, sorry, salt tooth. I keep mixing the two up. <laughs> um, I love I love the term salt tooth. Uh, so we're talking about misconceptions that you know ab- about savory baking and and what the genre is and what it encapsulates. Another thing that I, that crossed my mind is that I think baking writ large to a lot of people can feel like it's it's a project like if someone says do you want to bake something it feels like i'm i'm gonna have to like this isn't a quick thing and you have you know here you even title one of the recipes weeknight focaccia talking about something that to most people feels like i can't just like put together a focaccia granted there is some non-active time it's not coming together all together on a single weeknight um but i think that misconception that baking savory baking has to be time consuming or intensive or is quite challenging for like a, a novice baker also is dispelled to large extent in this book can you talk about that and how that sort of has influenced you as you've developed recipes yeah i mean i think in general one of the things that i strive to do with baking is uh encourage people to head into the kitchen more like the professionals do. And what I mean by that is that you don't have to have a high skill level, but if you have a certain understanding, things become a lot easier. They become a lot easier. You become less fearful in general. You can enjoy the process more. And one of the things that professionals kind of inherently do is break up things into manageable chunks. So I'm rarely making a pie all in one day. I'm usually making the dough one day, and maybe if I'm cooking the filling, I would do that as well the same day, get everything ready. Then the next day, I'm rolling out the dough and assembling the pie and baking it. And just by nature, I'm breaking it up into chunks because I don't want to feel rushed, and I don't want to take away from some of that joy in the kitchen. And for me, breaking things up also makes it more enjoyable. I can extend the experience, Um, you know. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that because something takes more total time that it's harder for you. A lot of that time might be inactive time, chill time, rest time, you know, all of these things. And and I sort of love that as the way baking is kind of a rhythm to life. Like, you know, people who are bakers, you know, you have these, you know, periods of time. It's like thinking about bread baking, you know, first we're mixing, then we're rising, then we're shaping. And there's all these like points in the day. But I think that that's really applicable for home bakers too. And um, to kind of shout out a friend of mine who I also think has done really great work on this subject, Michelle Lopez, who's the blogger behind Hummingbird High, has a great book called Weeknight Baking. And in Weeknight Baking, she specifically shows you how recipes can be broken down across multiple days. In my book, the way that I try to do it is first by ranking the recipes easy, medium, and hard. Obviously, easy recipes typically wouldn't have a lot of time associated with them. They also typically have a shorter ingredient list or um, a simpler method. You know, all of those things kind of factor into what I consider 
easy. Um, sure. But also, I have these sections at e- under each recipe called make ahead and storage. And those sections sort of detail which parts of the recipe could be made ahead and up to how far, how you could store them. Um, and even when you make something ahead, how it could maybe be refreshed to be served again. Um, so I think that that's another way that people can kind of go into the kitchen just armed with a little bit more information so that you're not flying blind with, oh, man, if I make this and we're only three people and we don't eat it all, what are we going to do with it? Or, um, oh, man, I really want to make a pie from scratch, but like I don't want to spend 10 hours all in one day in the kitchen. Well, don't worry about it. Just like see how you can divide these up. Enjoy the process and, you know, chill out a little bit more. Yeah, that's so smart. You also include a number of um, supplemental recipes and tips and things throughout the book. I, I'm hoping we can talk about a couple of those. The first one that I really loved is the basting butters, which to <laughs> me feels like they're these sort of incredible steps up from like a traditional egg wash or or something. But tell us about the basting butters and how you use those. First of all, thank you for calling this out because it's one of my favorite pages in the book. I love um, spending yeah. an entire page talking about butter, and I managed to do it of a course. few times in this book. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just talked about compound butters, talked about basting butters. Um, right. You know, I I like the idea of including these things sort of as mix and match tools for customizing your baked goods. Um, my book, The Book on Pie, the thing that I really loved about it and the thing that I think resonated with so many people who purchased it is that it was made to mix and match. So you could mix and match different crusts, fillings, toppings to create your own dream pie. Well, when it comes to savory baking, the same thing is true. We can be mix and matching or adding little customizations to recipes. There's sort of three times that I like to baste something with butter once is before baking. And this will contribute a little bit of browning and obviously a little bit of flavor. It will alter the texture on the surface of the baked good a little bit, making it a little crisper. Um, And then I sometimes like to do it midway through baking because, again, we're going to add another layer, which will maybe promote even more browning, same sort of thing. And then again, when they first come out of the oven, and this is something I love to do with like warm rolls, butter base them right at the end. Um, You don't have to do all three of those or you can do all three. That's one of the ways, you know, that you can customize it. And the butters, you know, we have sweet flavors because those really do complement savory. So maple butter or brown sugar butter. um, And then also things like garlic butter, herb butter, you know, savory things as well. Yeah, you also have these sort of flavor boosters throughout. So you have some savory jams, you have um, a few different uh, page or so of some seasoning blends um, that you can put together that you can rely on for different savory bakes. So really, it's very customizable and you're giving people lots of resources and tools to, to produce some great savory bakes. You also, you know, we've been talking a lot about our salt tooth, but you also do include, we've referenced this a little bit, but you do include these sort of sweet tooth breaks throughout, which I think is also just a really interesting thing to think about for people. They aren't separate recipes most of the time for something sweet. It's not like you've thrown in a sweet recipe here and there, but you've taken something like a cornbread and provided a way to make that sweeter for somebody who might be wanting to like take that base recipe, but just amp up the sweetness a bit. Yes. I, For one thing, I think it's another tool that people can use to bake a little bit more like the professionals. So a lot of professionals are going to use something that they think of more as a base recipe where they Mm -hmm. sort of say, okay, I've got this, this dough or this batter. I know it bakes up great. 
And then how will I customize it and adjust it in certain circumstances? And the sweet tooth breaks are both meant to serve as a great break if you are somebody who loves both salty things and sweet things. Well, here's a chance. Um, I also like it as a thought of, you know, I just live alone with my husband. And sometimes if I'm making something like a dough, I really might make some of them sweet and some of them savory so that we can have a mix of both. Um, One of my favorites that is really multi-purpose dough in the book is the monkey bread dough. It is so pillowy soft, so wonderful. And I have a really great sweet tooth break for that one where you sort of form them into buns. You fill them with whipped cream and glaze them with a glaze that's made with fresh fruit. It is Mm. so delicious and looks so fancy. But that dough is really very simple to make. And, you know, to take it from this one side of this like garlicky monkey bread or this cheese stuffed monkey bread and then just show you actually you can shape it a completely different way and fill it a different way and do everything different. You know, that's one of the ways that I'm definitely thinking when I go into the kitchen and I want people to feel comfortable kind of branching out and thinking that way, too. I love that. And I sort of was excited about the monkey bread because I come from the opposite approach, which is I spent most of my childhood with sweet monkey breads as a a thing I remember from my childhood and didn't, I I wasn't aware of savory monkey breads until later in life. And I am just so excited to try the one you have that's a sun-dried tomato, goat cheese, and walnut monkey bread. It looks incredible. That one is really yummy. So is the cheese stuffed one, though. I got to call that one out. That's like okay. little little stuffed sure. cheese puffs in each. Oh, anyway, it's really exciting. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, one of the most visually striking recipes that just totally stopped me in my tracks was the Italian sub bunt, which <laughs> I just want to call out for a minute because you bake, uh, you make the bread for basically an, an Italian sub in a bunt pan. So then when you have it horizontally, you still have these like incredible, this incredible height and this texture to the bread. What inspired you to approach an Italian sub in that way? Well, one of the things is that um, I really wanted to try to think of baking pans and things that I have that I use in my sweet baking applications and find savory ways to use them. So while bunt pans are not exclusively used for sweet applications, that is what we're thinking of most often. We're thinking of a bunt cake. I actually love baking breads in a bunt pan for a few different reasons. One is that you get this beautiful wedge slice when you slice it. And just like with a bunt cake, you can use the lines on the top to help you portion it. So in this case, it's actually really great for sort of a party sandwich type of situation because it's very easy to portion to make sure you have even servings. So you can really think, okay, I want to serve 16 people, 15 people, whatever it is, and everybody can get this little wedge. Um, But it's also a really fun way to remind you that if you've got existing equipment in your kitchen, you know, you don't only have to use it for kind of that one standard recipe. There's definitely lots of ways to go. So um, for me, that was a really fun one and it's been really fun to see the response because everybody wants to talk about the sub bunt and it's yeah. on the back cover <laughs> of the book so it's especially eye-catching there and waiting for you and part of that is because I really thought it deserved maybe to be on the cover of the book but um, mm. it's a long story as to why it didn't end up on the cover of the book but that's why it's on the back cover where it can still get lots of attention <laughs> sure I love that. Um, I also was just totally struck with your mule free tart. Something I would have never dreamed of, right? A tart that pulls together the 
I personally love mussels, so the wonderful flavor of mussels and frites, like what a great combo, and puts it all into a tart. Can you talk about where that came from? I love taking different flavor combinations that I love and reimagining them as other things. Certainly reimagining them as pies specifically is really fun for Mm me. Um, I think that tarts especially have this tendency to be very romantic and delicate. I have another tart recipe in the book that's actually so simple and easy, the scrambled egg tartlets that I think are Mm. incredibly romantic and sweet and just um, like actually perfect date night or romantic dinner sort of food. And the Moulfrit tart was actually mostly inspired by um, the trip to Paris that my husband and I took where he proposed to me. And we were, um, I told him because I was in the kitchen all the time that I didn't really care about having a ring, but I wanted a really good story. So he proposed to uh-huh. me in Paris, which was perfect. And we were eating um, moule frites. A, I mean, I am embarrassed to admit how many times I ate it on that particular trip, but from different places, of course. And yes. um, what I, the only thing that I don't love about eating moule frites is I don't love necessarily dealing with all of the shells as much as it's so delicious and everything is worthwhile. But I loved uh, reimagining it as a tart from that standpoint of what if every bite you could just get the parts that you need and that you didn't have to mess with the shell. It has a very simple press-in crust and then the mussels are cooked kind of exactly as you'd expect for this, you know, white wine, a little bit of cream, lots of allium. And then you make really, really tiny, thin shoestring fries for the top. And it is a little bit of a mess when you cut it because the French fries, you know, you have to kind of go sure. back in and and pull that. But obviously, it's an incredibly impressive one to serve. But it's also a flavor combination that um, I everybody, it's very familiar and wonderful. But I really think it does translate well into kind of a sliceable format. In a tart like that, that layer of the filling is really nice and thin. And I, it just works really well. It's one of my favorite recipes, too. I love that so much. I can't wait to try that one. Um, We're a show on cookbooks, uh, obviously. So I I love to ask if there are other authors or books that have been particularly influential to you over the course of your career. I know for one, our friend Rose Levy-Berenbaum. I think I read that her cake Bible was one of or the first or one of the first cookbooks you ever own. So um, I think she's a, a big inspiration for you, right? Yes. Yes, I rose, um, you know, I consider her a mentor for me, but I also am lucky enough to call her a friend as well as a colleague now. It's, you know, it's, it's wonderful how full circle that's become. But I definitely was reading um, the cake Bible on the floor of a bookstore in my hometown before I could afford it. I would just go and Uh like read little snippets of it. And, you know, I saved up eventually and bought the book and, um, you know, flash forward a number of years. I've now worked on four of Rose's books with her alongside her. Um, So she's definitely really instrumental to me in a few different ways, not only in, you know, the way that, that she writes and presents things. um, But, uh, I appreciate very much the advice she's been able to give me from a really practical standpoint of like, of how to promote my work, how to 
um, connect with people who are using my work. She's really been a resource for me. I always say it's really wonderful when you can talk to somebody who knows food because they speak your language. But with Rose, sure. she not only knows food and speaks that language, she speaks the cookbook language specifically. And and all of these things that I'm doing, she knows so intimately. So yeah, she's been very important for me and, and um, uh, so helpful to me kind of in my whole career. Another person that I really admire who's written some great books is my friend Joy Wilson, Joy the Baker. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What I love about Joy is her way of bringing herself to what she does. And that's been a real inspiration for me because when you're in a world full of people like Rose and Joy and all of these talented people, how do you stand out? And really, the only way to stand out, the only thing that you can do that other people can't do is be yourself. And I really kind of got that lesson from Joy the most, as well as writing about the things you're the most passionate about. Because if you ever write about something that you're not really loving, that's going to stand out and, and show, I think, in a way, too. Um, so, yeah, there, there's lots of people that I could could list as well. But those are a couple that yeah. come right to the top of my mind. Yeah, I love it. Well, we always end with little games. So I thought we would play, uh, of course, savory baking game today. I, I read too in your book that you say you feel you can turn just about anything into a pie. I feel like we can turn <laughs> just about anything into a savory baked good. You even turn some leftover rice into a pie crust um, yes. and savory baking, which people should check out. Um, so we have four decks of cards here, vegetables, proteins. We have some flavor cards, which are herbs, spices, etc. Uh, and then we have our secret ingredient deck, which is obscure, sort of random mix of ingredients. So I thought we'd play it chopped style, and I'll draw one from each of the four, and that's kind of the basket you have to work with, and tell us with our savory baking hats on how we might tackle that. How does that All sound? Right. I love it. That sounds okay. great. All right. Let's start with a vegetable. We have asparagus. Okay. Flavor is cilantro. Ooh. Our protein is beans. Okay. Open-ended beans. And our secret ingredient is peppermint. Wow. That is Bit of tricky. A twist at the end. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's tricky, especially with the cilantro and the peppermint. That Oh sure. Yeah. That's a little bit tricky. Okay. I think what I would do, um, one of the things that I like to do with beans, especially, that's like a great way to impart a lot of flavor onto something, but you can also manipulate the texture so easily. So mm -hmm. I like the idea of cooking the beans, you know, making with a lot of broth, with a lot of garlic, and you could definitely add the cilantro right into that kind of it, like really infuse that flavor into the beans. And I'm even thinking like a white bean specifically in this case, sure. something kind of starchy um, or more starchy, I should say. So cooking that down and getting those beans really tender, then draining them out and pureeing them up. And okay. I like the idea of using this. We were talking before about how I think the tarts are so elegant. And another thing that I really like is pies that are made less fussy because we're making them freeform. So I yeah. sort of like this idea of just rolling out pie dough or puff pastry dough, cutting it into squares, and just kind of like topping it with stuff and baking it. So I like the idea of what if we had, um, what if we had uh, these, this like, puff pastry base, we have a little bit of that cilantro white bean puree on the top of that. 
and sure. then lay some asparagus over the top of this and bake that up until the pie crust is really crisp and the asparagus is tender. When it comes out, maybe drizzle it with some oil and finish it with some fresh peppermint, which is maybe not what they were saying in that flavor card with yeah. peppermint, but peppermint can be also an herb, a leaf. So right. we'll go with that and put that on top of the asparagus. I love the way actually peppermint and any kind of mint goes really well with asparagus. But I think that that would be a really nice combination of flavors and, and textures too. So you'd get a little bit of crunch, you'd get that vegetalness from the asparagus, and then you'd also have this kind of creamy component from the beans. That sounds delicious. And I love that you threw out, I, if folks can't see, but there's little like peppermint candies on the card. I love that you you went the other route and went with fresh peppermint. Um, I think that's the way to go there. Should we do one more to close <laughs> us out? Yeah, let's. Okay, uh, let's start with a protein this time. We have goat. Okay. The flavor we're working with is basil. Mm -hmm. Our vegetable is sweet potatoes. And our secret ingredient is coffee beans. Ooh. All right. The easiest thing I could think to do is sort of use the coffee beans to crust the goat and make mm. a little bit when we sear the goat kind of make a little bit of this coffee crust. Um, what sure. I would do is maybe sear that goat and then turn it into a braise and then use that meat in a pastry and actually... Um, I have this wonderful empanada recipe. It's actually in the bonus ebook that we released for savory baking. They were sweet potato and chickpea turnovers in a okay. paprika crust. So they were sort of turnovers. Um, I mean, and I think they are so delicious. They have sweet potato inside, soft sweet potato and lots of scallion. And I'm thinking, let's just ditch the chickpeas and do this coffee crusted goat in there instead with the sweet potatoes and that paprika pastry. I feel like that would actually be really, really excellent. Oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah. And, and you would form it as an empanada. That's yes. How, they're yeah. sort of like, maybe a, the crust is a little bit more like a turnover style crust than it would be like an empanada because it's a little bit more buttery. But um, yes, okay. they're, they're sort of like, uh, uh, yeah, like little hand pies with the sweet potato and the goat inside. That would be so good. I actually love goat. You're making me hungry now. Oh, I know. Me too. Oh, that sounds delicious. Well, thank you so much for playing along. Um, and thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine, Aaron. This was great. Yeah, this was so much fun. I love the game. I actually... One of the things I miss about my school days is, you know, when you would get prompts like that, because I think it's really one of the best ways to launch creativity. And so even when you get a combination that you're not as excited about, I think it's always amazing, like what you end up coming up with. So I think that game is so fun. Thanks for, for doing that. Oh, totally. One of these days, we should just give this to somebody and say, write a cookbook with these yes. prompts, right? <laughs> How fun. Maybe, you'll, maybe you'd be up for it. <laughs> you should get different people to write different recipes. You know, I give different chefs a prompt and see what they come up with. Because that's the thing. How you fun. could give five different people the same prompt and none of the dishes would be even remotely similar, which is part of the cool thing about it. Totally. Yeah. Oh, so fun. Well, thank you so much, Erin. 
Thank you so much. Have a great one. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. For just a few dollars a month, you'll find tons of exclusive and bonus content from recipes, cookbook excerpts, essays, and more. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worcester. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique Lamas at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.